Welcome to the Commercial Disco, a voyage of commercial discovery. This episode is proudly brought to you by CSIRO, Australia's national science agency and innovation catalyst. Explore the commercialization of great ideas across deep tech and science. Immerse yourself in conversations with the ambitious minds shaping Australia's unique innovation landscape. Discover their insights into what's needed to bring these remarkable ideas to life. Hello and welcome to the Commercial Disco. I'm James Riley, Editorial Director at InnovationOz.com. This podcast is brought to you in partnership between Innovation Oz and the National Science Agency, CSIRO. Today I'm talking to Pete O'Connell. He's the CEO of Climatech Zero and chair of the Climatech Group. Is also in a previous life founder and executive chairman of Amazon, that incredible mobile and energy company in the end. He's also chair of Superloop and chair of a software company, Scotal Technologies. Welcome, Pete. Thanks, James. Good to be here. Okay, let's start with a descriptor. I mean, we're going to be talking a lot about Climatech Zero, the company, but also climate tech and, you know, decarbonisation, all those sorts of things and how government policy helps to drive those things. Talk to me about Climatech Zero. Just introduce the company. What do you guys do? Climatech Zero is a company that was formed to provide a partner for industry and owners of very big commercial buildings like shopping centers or data centers or cold storage groups to help them navigate through energy transition. So we're not consultants. We don't produce a report. What we do is we go to a factory, for example, and we analyze how they're using energy. And as a result of that, we make a proposal to that company about how they can change the way they do it. And it usually involves a small amount of capital to be spent, but generally we can get savings in that factory's energy bill very quickly of between 15 and 25%. And we have had savings of up to 35%. And we've been doing this now for nearly six years. What we also have is software that we put into the factory, which integrates with their BMS or SCADA software, which runs uh, and examines the, all the machines in the factory. And that software helps the manager of the factory to regulate his machinery and process to ensure that the savings we have identified and achieved are maintained over a long period of time. And in fact, what we do is we guarantee those savings if you use our software. Because what we actually found, James, when we first started is we go into the factory, make all the changes. The first six months, we get the savings and slowly they would leak away and we were mystified why. Then we realized what happens is that many factory managers or facilities managers go back and put the settings to where they were of the machinery because that's what they're used to. And so we had to find a way to really manage that and the software helps us do it. What the software also does is quite unique. We don't know any other software in the world that does this. And that is we provide an energy twin, common parlance, a digital twin, of how that factory or installation uses energy. So you could get to look behind the meter and see what's going on. And our software collects literally tons of data. 
And we analyze that data. And what that allows us to do is to come up with further solutions to make the energy use and the utilization of energy in that factory or installation much more efficient. There's two effects. One, we reduce operating cost. Two, we are effectively lowering the carbon emissions for that installation or factory. So we're a bunch of engineers and data scientists. That's what we are. Okay. And just tell me, I mean, is there a typical customer of this software? Is there a typical industry or is it cross-industry? Yeah. The industries that actually do very well, industries that are involved in packaging, like making glass or cardboard, food processing is very big, meat, flour, baking. The chicken industry is massive. We do a lot of work there and they get a lot of success. The mining industry is a new sector that we're working on now. You know, the top 100 companies are subject to a government direction that they achieve 4.9% reduction in carbon emission a year. And when we went into the mining sector a couple of years ago, we realized that no one really had a plan to do it. And so we helped. So those sectors in particular, but frankly, any significantly large building, we can help. We don't generally work in small buildings or towers, mainly because we think the market that we like is the bigger market, the industrial market, or the big commercial building market. There are others who work with small office towers and blocks, but that's not our market. Our market's at the big end of town. What about in another part of the climate tech group? You do quite a bit of HVAC work and in particular around engineering construction of data centers. Yes. Or data center operations. They're obviously huge consumers of electricity. How does it work in an environment like that? Yeah. What we're doing with data centers proposals, we have data centers, uh, a lot of what we call behind the meter services. Data centers are big users of batteries, big users of alternative forms of energy. They have to have a lot of redundant power supplies because as you know, James, they can't have uh, even a nanosecond of energy not being supplied to the computers. What we're also seeing is that there is a huge future demand of energy coming up for data centers because of the compute required originally for cyber currency, but now for AI. So we see that's an ongoing demand for energy and they're looking for as much on-site, behind-the-meter energy sources that they can get. And we're working with them, and that is a brave new world for data centers, for sure. I'll give you an example. There's a fantastic company in Tasmania called Firmus, F-I-R-M-U-S. And Firmus has built and is now selling into Asia a new technology, which is uh, liquid immersion. Now, liquid immersion data center has been around for years, but they've really cracked the code for producing it, making it both effective and a relatively cheap application. And all this simply does is take the chipboards that go into computers that generate heat, and they isolate them in a liquid, a particular ethanol-based liquid. They've got their own formula. It's a bit secret, like Coca-Cola, but it's not Coca-Cola. But they immerse the chipboards in the liquid reduces the heat, which reduces the requirement for heating, ventilation, and cooling, or air conditioning, which dramatically reduces 
the energy bill of that data center. And it allows that data center to add more and more compute power without pushing the electricity meter through the roof. You would have seen in recent COP24 meetings, there was quite a lot of discussion how there is a desperate need for investment in new technologies to assist. Renewables alone are not going to reach the goals that the Paris Agreement set, that what we need now and what is lagging is new tech. That something like liquid immersion for data centers is something we are working with Firmus on and we think it's got a real future. Yeah, that's uh, quite amazing. That's the second liquid immersion company I've heard of in Australia. The other one being Doug, based in uh, Perth. Yes, yeah. It also does the same thing. Okay, so here in Australia, all over the world, I suppose, I would think that your business must be booming. There must be queues of people out the door trying to get in to find out how do I make my factory more efficient. Is that the case? It is, and I like to say... And I think I said to you before that the software we use was developed by an Irish company called Cool Planet Group, which I invested in in 2008. And that took a mere 12 years to be an overnight success. We used to sell our services for energy reduction as good for the planet, but also a cost saver. And it grew on the back of that. But now in a world where decarbonization and energy efficiency dominates, Yes, we have an abundance of work. But are you satisfied that the kind of incentives that governments put in place, whether it's a carrot or a stick, are sufficient to drive people to become more energy efficient, or is it simply it's a cost issue? Not yet. We're at the very start of this process. Energy transition is quite scary for a lot of companies. And we're in a 10 and I think 15 or 20-year transition period. Right now, a lot of companies look at energy transition as a cost, a burden. But in fact, our clients who have now engaged in energy transition are seeing that it's actually aiding their efficiency, that they are adapting what was a fixed cost structure, i.e. the cost of energy, energy that they bought from the grid. They now can manage that in a more efficient way that the behind the meter skills, which involve having their own solar, their own batteries, heat pumps, which generate energy, and also having access to skills and technology, which allow them to reduce their energy needs, allow them to innovate within their own factory and innovate in a way which has two real effects. One is a reduction in cost and energy use, but increased innovation in how to design their process and how to design their factory. And the clients we find who embrace this, and sometimes there's early resistance, even with our clients or now, because what you're dealing with is a group of highly talented factory managers. They're clever engineers themselves, but they've been taught to do things a certain way. And that's where they're comfortable. And that's just human. So we have to convince them, one, we know what their process has to do, and that the way we would like them to modify that process will not impact productivity, but it will actually improve it and reduce costs and decarbonize. Is there a lot of education in Australia about this amongst middle management and even C-level executives? No, not enough. 
The mining industry is a very good example, James. Two years ago, when we attended the mining conferences, we were struck by how many mining companies had actually made public announcements about their goals on decarbonizing and having sustainable energy sources. The last year we went, that mood had changed a bit because there was, other than for the top 100 companies, which were subject to some government direction about their decarbonization requirements, the mood had changed and gone back to cost reduction. Because mining companies in Australia have quite strict budgets, you know, they're very conservative, well-laden balance sheets, and a lot of claims on OPEX. So the mood has changed that this is really difficult. The ability to be enthusiastic in the mining industry is an education process. I thought that Twiggy Forrest was making some headway there. He obviously makes a lot of noise about getting his mining operations to net zero. Yeah, he does. But there are 350 mines in Australia, and he's got some big ones, but a couple of them. And there are a lot of the medium-sized mines who really need to participate in this world. And we have an interest now in promoting electric vehicles, particularly small electric vehicles in mines. But it is interesting, James, because we went to a large, a very large mining company who bought one small electric vehicle to try it out, only to discover they had not enough power on site to charge that one vehicle because they're often in a remote area with one cable, and they can get so many megawatts per annum, but it's fully utilized in the existing process. What we showed them was, hold on, let's have a look at how you lose your energy. We can actually create spare energy, so you could actually run 100 vehicles on your site, which is what they needed. And that process, we're in that dialogue with the mine at the moment, and that's a revelation to them to completely lower the cost and fund what they are doing, their innovation, by reducing their cost of energy. And again, it's not reducing the cost, it's having more energy available to do different things. Okay, I'm talking to Pete Connell. He's the CEO of Climate Tech Zero. So when you go into an engagement, regardless of the industry it's in, you're not just going in with software. Do you partner with uh, solar companies or battery companies? How do you go to market? Yeah, it's a good question. We go in as a primary contractor. We have our own engineers. We're a house full of engineers. In fact, We're desperately looking for more mechanical engineers, if I might say that, James. And it's a great area. And I'm happy to say that everyone who works here is quite passionate about the area we're in. And what we do is we go in and we look at what they're doing. Our engineers have been in hundreds and hundreds of factories around the globe. And they understand how to get a factory to run properly. I'll give you a really good example. Almost in every factory we've been to in Australia, The first thing we notice is that they'll have pumps and compressors and all sorts of machinery, but they will not have one basic tool which changes the game. And that is a computer called a variable speed drive, which can be programmed to run the pump or the compressor at a speed other than zero or 100%, that it can run it at half pace or three quarter pace or turn it off at certain times. And what we then do is program that computer to drive that machinery to reflect the ambient conditions, whether it's hot or cold, what's needed, also to reflect the production process. So you have a computer actually thinking, and it has machine learning built into it, 
which is often today called AI, but it's actually machine learning, built into that variable speed drive to help govern the use of the machinery. And that has a few effects. One is it changes the facilities management process for that machinery. It extends the life of the machinery. It uses less energy. It makes the production efficient. So you're decarbonizing and you're lowering your cost structure. And the cost of the variable speed drive, the payback is usually 12 months or 18 months. So most of the payback for the capital that we need to modify a factory to take the benefits of energy reduction and decarbonization is two and a half to three years. So it's quite a quick turnaround. Okay, we like to talk about government policy on this podcast. So tell me this, in terms of the government's own efforts towards driving decarbonisation or energy efficiency and all of those things, what do we need to be doing more of here? What kind of incentives can we put in place? What do we need to do less of? What do government need to stop doing to enable these things to flourish? Yeah, we try and not rely too much on government funding, but funding like ARENA is incredibly helpful. And I was very interested in recent COP24 meeting, which said that we have to look at new technologies, such as carbon capture, but they're particularly looking at energy utilization and storage, sustainable bioenergy, hydrogen, of course, we've had a long debate on nuclear needs, a rational balanced debate because it is really the most efficient renewable energy that we have. And energy efficiency is where we particularly work as well as utilization. And I think incentives for companies to get going in this area, to actually start looking at this is very important. And they can have the clock on that. They can say, if you really want to make an impact, promote energy efficiency and energy utilization and storage in industry and big commercial buildings, provided you act quickly in the next three to four years. And assistance with the capital cost, anything that shortens the payback period, would be very effective. We use off-balance sheet financing with commercial third parties. The government has its own energy body that does that, but frankly, it's the most expensive in the market. Its interest rates are higher. The impact not only on OPEX is much greater than the commercial players in that field. Why is that so? And our experience is we've applied for financing from that organization, and it takes three to four times longer. And projects move quickly. And once they get stalled, they fall apart. Something else happens. Some other part of the business requires the capital, and it goes. Because the business case for the alternative use of that money overtakes the business case for energy reduction. So I actually think an overhaul of how we finance, free money is good, but free money has to be very directional. A proliferation of commercial batteries really helps, but allowing accelerated write-offs of heat pumps, for example, a really great source of renewable energy in factories would be incredibly helpful for us. So in summary, very targeted Grants are much more efficient and practical off-balance sheet financing arrangement. It doesn't have to be much cheaper than commercial, but it has to compete with commercial. And it has to compete because 
a bank or an organization from the government can actually apply the principles that COP24 wants the parties to that Paris Agreement to apply. That is, invest in new technologies, invest in utilization, invest in energy reduction. Renewables are good, but they're not the sole answer to the problem. And if you really want to have innovation in industry, invest in the new tech that drives a different way of generating and using, measuring and maintaining energy use. And there are a lot of people talking renewables, not enough people out there talking about innovation and technology as a bigger answer and an aid to renewables. Okay, so talking through that, because this gets to the nub of what we are interested in. So where do you see the particular fertile ground, the particular opportunities in this country where we have some core expertise or competitive advantage to really take advantage of this interest and investment in new innovation? Where do you see the, the bigger opportunities? Well, the bigger opportunities from my point of view is And we do do financing. I'll give you an example. A big opportunity that we are pursuing is what we call compressed air as a service. Many, many factories use compressed air as part of their process for hydraulics and a whole lot of activities. Where compressed air is actively used, it takes about 30% of the energy bill of that factory. Compressed air generators in this country are very old, poorly maintained. And the one thing we heard whenever we walk into a factory is the hissing of escaping air. That means you're wasting money. What we have done is approach clients and said, why don't we do compressed air? You punch a hole in the wall of your factory and we will deliver X number of tons of compressed air every month that you need. And we will take the risk on providing that. The beauty of that, James, is we have to fund that. So having assistance in funding new compressors, because half the problem is the old compressed air compressors tend to get run to the end of their life. Their efficiency dies off pretty dramatically. We see compressors 30, 40 years old producing half the air that they did when they started. So what we plan, and we're doing it for two clients at the moment, We provide all of the brand new compressors. We provide redundant compressors. We finance that off balance sheet. We have a third party who actually finances that. We take the full risk of producing all the compressed air to that hole in the wall of the factory and their internal system, which they renew at the same time to eliminate the leaks. They take care of that, the client does. And then that business case relies on the energy saving that you get by having efficient compressed air to fund the OPEX required over 10 years to pay off that compressed air service. So the opportunity for compressed air in this country is massive, just massive. But nobody has been interested in it because the compressors are made overseas. There are very few specialists in this country who know how to maintain them. We're actually hired some and we're training people at the moment. And it's a key area of reducing energy cost and decarbonisation. And when we go to new factories and talk about it, they love it. They're a bit suspicious of it because they're not used to doing off-balance sheet financing. Asset financing like that is for other people. 
But once they have now seen that we're doing it and it works, we get a lot more traction. So that's, say, one example. So the big opportunities for us are having much bigger variety of energy generation after the meter. Heat pumps is one I mentioned. Solar is another. Batteries are becoming more and more important. It's disappointing to see that batteries themselves, the technology has not as advanced as quickly as we thought it might. It's quite a conundrum. And then the data is understanding how your factory is using energy. They're the four areas we're focusing on after the meter. And anything that stimulates activity, the R&D grants should be extended to allow factories to take their first load of software, integrate it with their SCADA system or their BNS to look at their factory from an energy profile point of view in absolute detail. They're the opportunities and all factories in Australia benefit from that, all of them. All right, Peter Connell, Chief Executive of Climate Tech Zero. Thank you very much for joining us on the Commercial Disco. Great, thanks James, appreciate it. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Commercial Disco podcast, proudly brought to you by CSIRO. Don't forget to like, subscribe and leave a review wherever you heard us. For the latest on tech, innovation and public policy, visit innovationoz.com. And stay connected with us on social media to ask questions or suggest future guests. Until next time, this is the Commercial Disco wishing you an inspired week ahead.